The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So we've been uh, looking at Joseph Goldstein's book, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening, getting near the end. And this book is following a discourse, the Satipatthana Sutta, and near the end, the Buddha is talking about the path, or the Eightfold Path. So the best way or a useful way to think about this path, that whether human beings realize it or not, we gravitate towards this path because it's not a Buddhist path. It's just the path of least resistance, actually. This is what the awakening is about, is uncovering the path of least resistance in life and how ignorance, not understanding the way things are, keeps us from intuiting that way of being. So the path of least resistance is using the tool of awareness, mindful awareness, bringing that mindfulness awareness to different aspects of our life. And when we bring awareness to an aspect of our life, it purifies that part of life. It purifies that part of life from not seeing clearly, right? So it's the not, you know, in different places of our lives, we're not seeing clearly. And the not seeing clearly has implications for how things unfold. So, for example, the way to think of this in terms of the Eightfold Path is there's a relatively subtle aspect of our existence, a relatively, you know, in-between aspect of our existence, and a relatively gross aspect of our experience. So this subtle part we call wisdom, purifying our view. We pay attention to our underlying beliefs, and by just seeing them as they are, we begin to understand what beliefs are skillful and what beliefs or underlying views are not so skillful. For example, having a strong, self-centered view, if we observe how things work for us, when we're living out of a strong, a strongly self-centered view, we see it doesn't work very well. And we purify the activity of our mind. We pay attention to the activity of our mind. And we notice just by seeing what gets set in motion, what kind of activities, what sort of mental qualities lead to stress and what sort of mental qualities lead to release. And we purify our actions by bringing mindful awareness to our actions, how we relate to each other, how we relate to communities, how we show up in the world. And we notice some ways of showing up don't work so well, and other ways do work much better. So this is what we've been talking about the last few weeks, and specifically we talked about right speech. What kind of speech works? What kind of speech doesn't work? When we take a big view an objective view, and we simply observe when I'm telling falsehoods, what happens to me, let alone what happens to the world around me, but what happens to my own mind and heart when I can justify bending the truth or leaving some of the truth out, or when I can justify using my words as uh, as a weapon to harm somebody, or what happens when I use my words to sort of make a power play, like a harsh language, provocative language. 
or when I use my words like idle chatter to sort of fill the space of my life so I don't have to feel what I'm feeling. So we just look at the implications of speech. Now tonight, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at another section in this area we call sila, purifying our actions, bringing our actions, how we relate to each other, in line with our deepest understanding. So we'll look at uh, the five precepts. Some of you know because you've maybe chanted them or you've learned them at some point. These are the precepts the Buddha recommends that lay people undertake. I undertake the training to refrain from killing or refrain from harming living beings. I undertake the training to refrain from taking things that haven't been given to me. I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. This one we talked about the last few weeks. I undertake the training to refrain from false speech, slanderous speech, speech, harsh speech, and idle chatter. I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind in ways that lead to carelessness. So it's not that intoxication is in itself bad. It just increases the probability of acting in ways that are harmful or hurtful. So tonight especially we'll look at this first one. I undertake the training to refrain from killing and harming living beings. And we want, it's basically the Buddha is just framing this part of life where we're looking at how we show up in the world and noticing on purpose, noticing how our actions cause harm or kill other living beings. And so we're illuminating that part and we're noticing what gets set in motion. There's an interesting story. Some of you might know of Andy Olensky. He's a well-known Buddhist scholar and the, uh, for a long time was a senior, um, uh, I don't know, senior researcher. I'm not sure what his title was at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, but the main researcher uh, there and one of the main teachers there as well. And he told a story once when I was... Um, taking a workshop from him a long time ago. Uh, he had, was doing some kitchen remodeling and a skunk had gotten into the house. They woke up, I think it was a weekend day, and uh, his son came into his room and said, you know, there's a skunk chasing our dog, our dog in the kitchen. So Andy got out of bed, you know, in his boxers and walked down in the kitchen, he said, and sure enough, there was a skunk chasing their dog around in this kitchen. And uh, it occurred to him, fortunately, that, well, maybe the squirrel is rabid. I'm not the squirrel, it was the skunk. It was rabid. So somehow he got it outside, and uh, he realized he needed to, he should kill the skunk because it's probably going to bite some other creature and spread the rabies that way. So he asked his son to bring him his little bow and arrow. <laughs> you can just, Andy's a big guy. You could just imagine him out in his front lawn with this tiny bow and arrow <laughs> chasing this skunk. But anyway, the point he's making here is to kill the skunk. Like he, Even though it seemed to make sense, like when we talk about the greater good, it seemed to make sense for him to kill the skunk 
as a way of protecting his family and protecting the other families and the other pets and other animals. It seemed to be the right thing to do. But he noticed in that moment of aiming and pulling back the string that he couldn't do it with a wholesome motivation. Like he, His general intention was good, but he had to use like fear or anger to the intention to kill, right? the intention to harm. It doesn't matter if anybody knows, anybody else knows, anybody else sees us. It makes an impression in our heart when we intentionally seek to harm or kill a living being. Now, you don't need, it's not good to believe these things, but it is good for us now, once having heard this, to check it out. Like the next time you're inclined to squash a spider on your windowsill. That spider is too big to be inside, you know? And so, and I don't have time to get it outside. Oh, you know, all these sort of justifications. Well, now, I'm not saying you should kill it, but if you are going to kill it, why not be aware of what that's like? See, this is, this is one of the real um, consequences of being busy in life or thinking that we're busy. I'm too busy to feel this out, to think this through. All I know is I'm not comfortable having going to bed and there are three mosquitoes in my bedroom. That's not okay. I don't have time to figure out how to get them out of this room. So I'm just going to be done with it, right, and kill them. And then so, well, let's see. Because we just assume that that's okay, but we won't really know unless we show up. What is it to intentionally kill another being? What is that experience? This is from Shanti Deva, this, I think, 8th century, 9th century Buddhist monk and teacher, very well-known teacher. He said, We are like senseless children who shrink from suffering but love its causes. And this is the thing. that like we don't like the experience of being tight, but are we willing to carefully investigate our lives to see what the causes for getting tight are. What are the causes leading to my heart being burdened or tight? So this training to purify our actions, not by imposing some outside, like, do not kill, you know, do not steal, don't have sex, <laughs> you know, all these things. And it's so easy for us to reject it because maybe partly because we're Westerners or Americans, but I think just generally we don't like to be told what to do. And so the invitation, like in in the Buddhist uh, approach to morality, the invitation is to look. What is skillful? What is unskillful? The Buddha says, and what practitioners is right action? Remember, the word right means, one connotation is even, like action that doesn't leave a trace, doesn't leave an imprint or reverberation in our heart, in our mind. So we do it, and the heart is clean after doing it. It like leaves a good taste, a clean taste. 
There's no remorse in the mind, in the heart after doing it. So that's what we mean by right action, not sort of in this higher than, lower than, but it's really a pragmatic definition. And in fact, the whole approach to ethics is commonsensical, cause and effect, pragmatic. This is what Gil Fransdell says about Buddhist ethics. Buddhism understands virtue and ethics pragmatically, based not on the idea of good and bad, but rather on the observation that some actions lead to suffering and some actions lead to happiness and freedom. A Buddhist asks, does this action lead to increased suffering or increased happiness for myself and others? This pragmatic approach is more conducive to investigation than guilt. Right? And isn't that what we're doing? This is this place of purification. So instead of this messy, tricky, sometimes confusing area of how we relate to each other in a competitive environment often, even when we're not like, you know, opposing each other in business or in sports, it's always competitive, like wanting your respect, how much respect do I have to give you in order for you to respect me, or how nice do I have to treat you in order for you to treat me the way I want to be treated. So there is this sort of business-like give and take in our relationships. So it's messy, it's difficult. So we want to be pragmatic. Okay, I can't help but inhabit the social world. Even if I hide in a cave, I still have this very small community of one, which is more than enough. You know, it's not necessarily cleaner living by yourself or less messy living by yourself than with a lot, you know, two million people or whatever we have now in the metro. So we need to bring this common sense approach. We bring awareness. Okay, let's see what happens when I relate this way, when I make choices that are like this, or when I make choices that are like that. So the Buddha says, and what practitioners is right action? Refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. This is right action. So refraining is the the place to begin. It's like our first tool to use when we start to explore. Remember, it's an exploration. Instead of just getting swept along by habit energy, there's a hairy spider, so we kill it. There are a lot of ants in the kitchen, so we put out poison. You know, we have mice in the house, so we do this. I'm going to be outside, so I'm going to turn on my electric zapper and, (laughs) you know, and firebomb the yard with some pesticide and, you know, all the sort of, and you know how it is, we get a little crazed when things are irritating us and it, it, it makes sense to want to like pull out the heavy duty stuff. We just want to stop being irritated. And it's interesting, like the reason that kind of action makes an imprint in our heart is there's a very clear view. You know, instead of, like we always wonder why we feel so alienated. Why 
life feels so like flat or sometimes unreal. How distant real love, that sense of real connection, how rare that is. And yet, so much of the time we justify a view that holds us apart. Because when we can justify you know, all the ways that we're willing to harm others, including simply by not paying attention, like around social injustices, like the fact that we have how many millions of people incarcerated in this country, a lot of them, the, I don't know, some great majority of people of color. And, you know, it's like one of these really sticky issues. Like, I just don't want to, I don't want to have to own that or talk about military intervention in the different ways we, this country, our leaders, our resources are being spent in all these ways in other parts of the world. And so part of the commitment of non-harming, you know, part of it is like how we show up, how we participate, and what kind of actions we justify. Sometimes our actions are very much, I'm squashing that bug. And sometimes it's, I just don't have time to figure out if there's anything I can do about this bigger issue that I'm somehow just superficially involved in. But it's not really me. I wouldn't do that. So we don't, we practice an ignorance, like not taking responsibility for the different kinds of injustices that because of our privilege and because of being part of this community, we're part of. And it's not about like thinking that we should feel badly. Thinking that we should suffer is not helping anybody. It doesn't help people who are being bombed or people who are being oppressed if we feel badly. What helps is to be willing to be sensitive. And that's really the invitation with Buddhist ethics or this the way the Buddha taught. The approach to ethics is we purify our actions not by trying to be good but by paying attention. And not just paying attention to sort of in a deep really going to tune into this thing, but also in a broad way. And there's this great line from um, Padmasa Sambhava, uh, the person, one of the people who brought Buddhism to Tibet many, many hundreds of years ago. And he had, uh, because there's one of the sort of ancient questions in Buddhism is like, what does karma mean to somebody who's awake, somebody who's, has deep insight and and has seen through the uh, illusion of a fixed self, not confused by the idea of a me apart from this interdependent arising. So the question is, well, what about karma for that kind of person? So whenever there's a wise person throughout Buddhist history, they somebody eventually will ask the person, you know, what about karma? You know, how does that, what do you think about karma, cause and effect, now that you're free? <laughs> so he had a great answer to this. He says, although my view is as vast as the sky, right? So my way of seeing, my way of understanding 
doesn't have a fixed center. It's all inclusive. No center, no me, you, good, bad. Seeing things from every angle, right? Not just one fixed point of view. Although my view is as vast as the sky, or somebody might say empty, my attention to the details of karma, cause and effect, skillful, what's skillful and what's unskillful, is as fine as a grain of barley flour, which is pretty fine, pretty attentive. But now you would hope that for somebody with a lot of freedom, a lot of wisdom, that that attention to the details of life doesn't feel like a burden. It's a joy. You know, it's like, can feel like, initially it feels like a real burden. Oh, you mean, I got to pay attention. When I go to the grocery store, I got to pay attention to what I buy. You know, is it harming living beings? Or the clothes I buy? Or these being made by people in certain places, young people, who have a really terrible work environment. Oh, I just don't want to deal with that. Or, you know, when we vote, you know, do I really not want to vote for this person because they support this war? But then if I don't vote for this person, this other person's going to get elected. You know, everything is complicated. But we want to, it's not that we pretend we know the right answer, but we're committed to paying attention and not being confused by the complexity because it isn't about so much getting the right answer as it is about caring about the motivation. And remember, for us in this room, it's less about how many times do we actually have the intention to kill. So sometimes probably, right? But not that often, but much more often the way we um, maybe, the way we could sort of improve or um, develop this training around non-harming is to illuminate all the times we choose not to know. We choose not to pay attention because it's complicated, because it's messy. And then, so what we're doing is we're pretending we're not causing harm because we're choosing not to know the consequences of our actions or our passive participation in different ways. Because otherwise, what happens when we do start paying attention is our heart starts to break open more and more and more in a good way. We start to feel more, touched more by the messiness of life. And it, it actually undermines self-view because self-view can't handle that. Like if we take that poignant touching of our heart, the fact that we live in this messy world, we're participating in a lot of destruction, a lot of harm, even though we don't want to, even though we may be doing our best, and the heart's really touched by that, a self-view can't handle that. So we have to find a bigger view, a vast view, as big as the sky, because that view, that understanding is willing to be touched by all the suffering in and around us and not be burdened, not be weighed down, not be confused by it. 
So there are three parts of all of these trainings that we want to keep in mind. Same with right speech that we talked about the last couple of weeks. So we want to see restraint not as some big burden like I shouldn't do that, but it's a real enlivening force in our lives. Like it makes us happy to refrain or restrain ourselves from doing something that's harmful or hurtful or that would kill. Like to realize that we escaped that mistaken action. It feels so good. And we already are good, relatively good at restraint. But now, because i am kind of pointed it out or the Buddha's pointed it out for us, we want to notice what a powerful, useful force restraining restraint is for us. I'm not kidding. I bet most of us hundreds of times a day actively practice restraint. Like we're in a situation where there's some habit energy drawing us into an action and there's some wisdom that understands that, honey, if you do this, this is what's likely to be set in motion. Don't do this. Honey, don't do this. For your own well-being and for the well-being of others, don't do this. And sometimes that force is greater than the force of habit drawing us into the action. And we don't do it. And we feel better having not done it. Other times, the habit energy is bigger. We get drawn into the action. And then that conscience, you know, in English we often use the word conscience. The Buddha talks about it as hiri otapa, the sort of force of wholesome concern and wholesome regret. It's like how the past arises in the present moment and informs it, right? Because that's how we know this is unskillful is because we've done something similar in the past or we've observed other people doing that and we've seen the consequences. Oh yeah, that doesn't work. So that force arises in the mind, it informs the situation, but the habit energy takes over. Well then that force of conscience it sort of informs us by feeling regretful. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. It feels lousy to have done that. That's, a, that's surprisingly also an enlivening force in the mind. We, we can turn it into guilt and self-hatred. That's not useful, of course. But when there's just that yucky feeling when we've done something that later than we know we shouldn't have done, well, it's, it's like a monument in our heart. Honey, don't do that again. That's not a, a wise thing to do. So you might notice that, like both the force of restraint that's preventing you, and then if you end up doing it anyway, notice the force of, re, of uh, regret and appreciate it, like honor it. Oh, I'm, I'm happy that there's this feeling of regret. It's not a pleasant feeling, but... It gets my attention. That's why it feels the way it does. right? It's there to get our attention. If it was a pleasant, gushy, mushy feeling, <laughs> it wouldn't inform us. You know, It wouldn't teach us. Don't do that. So nature is really wise. And this is really important because, of course, as the practice deepens, we have to understand how morality continues even when somebody loses the sense, uh, drops or goes beyond the sense of 
an individual agent who's responsible for right and wrong. And it's just everything happening on its own, nature happening. The system still works. This is, you know, goes back to that question like, can an enlightened being do whatever the heck they want? Because it doesn't matter. You know, they're not taking it personally. But the system doesn't allow for it because the system of cause and effect, the system of the conscious, like being conscious, conscious or feeling that wholesome remorse or feeling that wholesome concern before we do the action, that's just built into the system. It's a natural force. So that's actually all that's left from the past. Whatever we've seen clearly in the past exists now as wholesome regret and wholesome concern. And then also, which leads us to the next part of sila. So the first part is just um, better and better understanding how restraint operates and how it's liberating. It's something to really value, something to be happy about. And then it also works in a positive level. So it's not just like to become a skillful human being, it's not just about avoiding or refraining from unskillful action. We also want to practice being inspired by being skillful. So how can we use images like an aspiration? We see somebody who seems to be naturally generous, you know, maybe a neighbor or a friend, and you just see like, boy, they, they seem really happy. And we we feel like some kind of resonance. So we cultivate an aspiration. I want to be like that person. And that image, that imagined image, and our own intuition, right? So in the same way that when we make mistakes, we have some felt sense, like don't, don't do that. When we've observed others or have observed ourselves doing something skillful, that also lives on, right? That's also distilled out of the past and lives right here in the, in the moment as these, this force of aspiration. Some kind of sense, this, it's like a, we sometimes call them values. Like we have these values that we trust. And, and someone will like, why is that your value? Well, we may not know why that's our value often because it's like, the cumulative wisdom of having lived our life and observed other people living their lives and having seen what actually leads to happiness for self and others. And then it gets distilled into this value, like take turns or, you know, share when you have something, share it with those who don't have much. Or um, when you can, Say something nice. I mean, these are like things you, you remember your kindergarten teacher saying to you. But we want, it's like, in terms of actually being happy in a very pragmatic sense, these, this way of practicing really delivers. Even more effective in terms of an immediate way to gain happiness than learning to calm your mind through meditation technique, which is very useful and really delivers. But immediately uh, gaining happiness, this is the fastest way to become happy, is to understand the force of restraint and understand how to 
distill and recognize these values that you trust. Like the value, instead of don't harm living beings, how about a value for the reverence for life? It's very interesting. Uh, my wife, Wynn, she's a choreographer in town, teaches at McAllister, but uh, a number of years ago for Minnesota Dance Theater, she did a piece on killing. I think that's what it was called, on killing. And uh, she did some research, and there was a book written a while back, and I think it might actually be titled that, On Killing. And after World War II, they did this examination of how many soldiers, U.S. soldiers, actually shot to kill during World War II. And, you know, as best they could do the study, they determined that it was a a surprisingly low percentage of the soldiers actually shoot to kill. Most of the killing, like in the hand-to-hand combat and the sort of close-range shooting, most of the killing was done by, I forget what it was, but I seem to think it was like in the 20 percent. Is that right? Yeah. And then and then they so they worked really hard in the 50s and 60s to figure out how to change the training so that they could get the kill rate up higher to like in the 80s. They wanted it to get up into the 80s because to have an effective fighting force you need to do this. Because it isn't easy most human beings because we're social beings we have this value of reverence for life. It's, we intuit it, but we need to sort of bring it out. We need to consciously recognize it and, and name it and state it. And this really empowers it. So that's why, like some of us, you know, the people who sort of like the, the uh, sort of ritual part of uh, the Buddha's teachings, you know, like in the morning... To myself, I go through the five precepts every day. And I say, oh yeah, I undertake the training not to kill, not to harm living beings. And I think about that for a few seconds and go down to the next one. And I, and I think about this reverence for life. Like, it isn't easy being alive. No living being wants to die, right? It's not their conditioned habit to want to die. And in the same way that I'm afraid to die, I'm confused by that experience. I don't know what to expect. They also, in their simplistic ways, if it's a more simple creature, or complicated ways, if they're a human or a more complicated creature. So this recognition that they're not so different than me. Even really simple creatures, insects, they're kind of eating and pooping and moving around and hooking up. and I mean, it's not that different in the basics. And so we can appreciate like their struggle to stay alive and relate it to our own struggle. And so we can cultivate this reverence for life. So we have the force of restraint and then we have the positive aspiration. And then every once in a while, there's a more effortless kind of non-harming where it's, it just arises out of um, right view, you could say, where somebody or where you and I in a moment or in a few moments um, have abandoned this fixed sense of self 
And you'll notice in those moments that harming doesn't enter the mind. The intention to harm is not an intention that arises in a liberated mind moment. It requires, like I mentioned with Andy Olensky's story about the skunk and killing the skunk, the rabid skunk, it requires a very strong sense of separation, me and this being that needs to die or doesn't matter. This real sense of separation and hate. Now, I don't know about these questions about justified killing. And it seems to me like, you know, there's always these hypotheticals. Well, if somebody ran into the room right now and said, you know, I'm going to kill one person or I'm going to kill everybody, (laughs) you know, and then we have to decide, okay, do we sacrifice one person or do we kill, let them kill everybody? You know, these sort of hypothetical questions. I don't really know. But I think that the practice tells us how to show up, right? Because what we're doing is we're looking at our motivation. We're looking, and we don't want to trust fear, and we don't want to trust hate, and we don't want to trust greed. We want our choice, our motivation, you know, what we're going to do to come out of compassion or care or kindness or a letting go. But not a motivation that comes out of a strong sense of self because it reinforces the causes for suffering. And it's, that's more of a Buddhist approach to ethics. Not to have a set of rules Okay, this is what I do. And in some ways it seems so much easier, you know, if I you just tell me what's right and wrong so I don't have to think about it anymore. But instead what we're learning is how to show up to these moral quandaries that show up in our lives. How to show up? Well, we're going to pay attention, and in particular we're going to pay attention to the intentions, the motivations in our heart. We're going to look at them. Do we trust this motivation? Do we trust the motivation of hate or the motivation of difference? Like, you're not me. You're different than me. So you don't have the same rights as me. Isn't that what we say when we're willing to harm or willing to abuse? You don't have the same rights as me. It's so interesting in these discussions of human rights about, oh, wait, they're American citizens. We can't do it to American citizens. But, you know, well, if they're not American citizens, yep, then it's okay because they don't have the rights that American citizens have. Now, I get that. I get the legal difference. But that's, that doesn't stand up in terms of how our heart operates, real morality. You know, either human beings sort of matter or they don't matter. Either people, other beings, share the rights, respect that we have for our own life, or they don't deserve the respect that we give our own life. So what is it? So I'm guessing that people have worked with this issue of killing and non-harming in many different ways. So we have 15 minutes. It'd be nice to hear people's questions and also just some comments about what you've learned in your life, how you've gotten close to these questions, how you've felt skillful in opening to these questions, and how at times you felt unskillful. So what comes to mind?
Yeah, Raha. Um, I have a situation. It's called Nadia. My eight-year-old, which loves it. I heard about this. Um, I have this upset feeling sitting here after the sense of you we were asking uh, first reading, then going to calm, then figure out the truth. Feeling is so part of my feeling is upset. This is this is the real benefit of mindfulness because it creates that sense of space. Because why do we think the first intention is the skillful one, right? The first intention, the loudest intention, is the one that has been conditioned in from the past. That's the big habit energy, but that's not necessarily the skillful one. So, if we're mindful, we notice the first intention, we notice the second, we notice the third, we keep noticing. And after noticing different intentions, like Raha says, the initial intention would have driven us into action, but it, the motivation maybe we didn't trust, right? But maybe the same action could be undertaken or a similar action could be undertaken with a different motivation of concern or care, right? And this is, so this is important because a lot of people think, well, if I can't use my hate, my anger, to make change happen, then I, my, the only alternative is passivity. But that's, is that actually the case? If we sit with the situation in this honest, fearless way, and we let things move, we let the hate come, but we don't feed it, so it goes. And it comes, and it goes. Well, pretty soon we'll start noticing that there are other motivations, like a deep, powerful compassion. Well, compassion is naturally leads to action, or often, if there's something to do, will lead to action. But now it's because you want to take care of all beings, not want to, um, you know, I got hurt, so I want to hurt you, which is that, and often that initial thing, you hurt me, and I don't know what to do with that pain, so I'm going to hurt you, because as insane as it sounds when we say it, that's how it feels. I mean, even with people we deeply love, Somebody I love, like my partner, if Wynn does something consciously or not consciously that hurts me, it's like I want to stick it to her. And I see it often, 
but not always. And it's crazy, but there it is. And it's really important that we're honest because when we're honest, then we can make the choice, you know, I don't believe in that intention, that motivation. It's there. I have to acknowledge it and I have to be careful. That's what that wholesome concern is. Like, honey, don't do it because it doesn't lead to good results. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that real life example, Raha. Yeah, Jack. Can you explain the contribution of the teachings? Uh, on one hand, sometimes in his lifetime, he was willing to be hacked to death. I, I wouldn't, if you're thinking of the same uh, story from the suttas, the discourses that I am, that preemptive one, uh, I mean, who knows what really happened. And, you know, the other thing we have to understand is that these teachings first were an oral tradition for very long and then written down. And so things could have probably have been added or subtracted or changed. So we don't really know exactly what the Buddha said or didn't say. But clearly there are many, many instances where he talks about not killing, not harboring, not bringing up or acting on the intention to harm or kill. Or if you do, there will be consequences to those, to acting on those intentions. And the, the example where he gave preemptive advice, I think he, uh, somebody asked him about... Um, why it is that this other kingdom could never be overtaken. And the Buddha said something like, as long as a, a, a community lives in concord, you know, has harmonious relationships and sort of operates in a just way, you're not going to be able to overtake them, you know, because there's a lot of strength in that community. And so the clever enemies of that kingdom said, well, let's, Let's send some spies in and sow dissension, you know, and really disrupt the community so they're all bickering with each other and then we'll invade, which is what they did and then overtook the country. So I don't know if it's fair to say that the Buddha was like, do this and then you'll be able to, you know, take over that country. I'm guessing not. And there were times when I think even his own, the place of his birth was invaded and taken over and he could have intervened and he didn't. You know, he could have, he generally, and this is a rule for the nuns and the monks, not to intervene in politics. So more often, almost always, you know, the Buddha would even avoid doing, saying anything that could be construed as giving favor to one or another. And it makes a lot of sense because they wandered through all these different kingdoms. So I think generally speaking, the Buddha was apolitical. I mean, I think, and because we don't really know, we get to say that as much as we make sense of these teachings, it makes sense that he would stay away from giving advice and especially around warfare. And there are examples, like Jack says, of people 
there's one it, it kind of, uh, what did the Buddha call it? The simile of the saw. Even if someone were sawing off your limbs, you should maintain feelings of loving kindness. If you understand what I'm trying to teach, what I'm the direction I'm pointing, then you understand that even if somebody were doing something that horrible, that terrific, it is still to our benefit to refrain from hate and to maintain thoughts of loving kindness. In other words, it never helps anyone. There's never a justification for hate. So he uses these very extreme examples. Like, don't believe the habit energy of hate as if it's functional. Hate appears in the mind to be functional in many little and big ways in our life. And we want to start catching it and look at it. Is this really helping? Like, if there's a particular politician that really gets, you know, bothers you, and then she or he is on the news doing exactly what bothers you, saying exactly what bothers you, and it can feel so appropriate to hate them and to want to belittle them or even think like wanting something bad to happen to them. It just feels you feel justified in doing that. But what you want to look at is what kind of heart, what kind of mind is being set in motion right now? Is that the kind of heart or mind I want to be inhabiting in the years ahead, in the days ahead? Other thoughts that come to mind from your experience or questions? Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Jonathan. I was wondering what to do with or about anger towards other people. And the, story, the story of how this came up from what you were talking about is it reminded me of a time many years ago when there was a mouse in the apartment where I lived. And on a weekend when I was away, uh, my roommates were successful in trapping it on one of those, those blue traps. And they told the story to me that, that they couldn't bring themselves to kill it. And that they had tried to psych themselves up for, for a really long time to do it. And eventually they had just left it in a park to, to die. What, what really bothered them at very cruel conditions. And this upset me a lot. And part of what upset me was, I think, to do with the difference between them and myself. Because I don't think I've actually ever killed anything other than an insect, but I'm completely confident that if I were in that situation, that I would be in time. I've also thought about that statistic that you, you, you talked about about World War II. I'm kind of completely confident that I would have been one of the 20% of people shooting uh, to kill. Just, you know, not, not because I like the idea of killing someone. In fact, maybe even just isn't charged with the same. Anyway, what I wanted to do to ask about this was how 
do with that sort of anger at other people for not doing what you would have done or what you would have thought was right. Well, like any anger and all of these ethics, this whole area of ethics of which is really all about showing up in community, showing up with each other, with other living beings, finding a way to live in the world we actually inhabit with all these other living beings, in a way that, like, because living together like we all do, not just human beings, it's making impressions on the heart, right? That's what experience does. It leaves an impression. And... So we want to learn to live in a way where the impressions are either positive or no impression at all, right? We we don't want what we call negative impressions that then cause suffering, cause this mind-heart to be tight, to feel burdened, to be remorseful, because it hurts. So the question is, like, when we notice there's a lot of anger or when we're in a situation that triggers a lot of anger, how can we relate to that in a way that's clean? That the impression is either positive, leading to pleasant results, or there's no impression at all. There's no leftover. So that's just a good question. How can we relate to our anger? How can we relate to others' anger? And the answer, I mean, the general answer is with understanding. Like we if we know what anger is and what anger isn't, like if we can notice our anger as a natural force, one of my teachers, Michelle McDonald Smith, she for a long time was one of the three month teachers, the teachers for the three month retreat at IMS in Massachusetts, this big retreat center. And she's from Hawaii, and um, she told of a time when the lava was flowing, probably on the big island, I'm guessing. And uh, they went out to see it because they have some land on the big island as well as where they live on Oahu. And she was, they were just sitting, sort of meditating, watching the spewing. And, and all of a sudden her mind made a connection like anger <laughs> is a lot like that. You know, it's a natural force. It's very destructive, but it's natural. So we can notice it in our heart that way. We can notice it in others that way. So we, we want to not judge it. We don't want to be afraid of it. But we don't want to personalize it either. Because when we personalize it, then we have to act it out. We have to do something about it. And this is the real trick with strong emotions. Repression doesn't work. Now, temporarily, maybe as best we can do you know we just like get ourselves out of the room before we hit somebody or something like that that i'm not saying that that isn't useful but ultimately we have to see it we have to feel it we have to understand it so that we can see it without feeding it and we feed the anger by identifying with it and then bringing to mind images and thoughts that re-trigger it because anger is a process it needs fuel to keep going and if we aren't fueling it, it will fade and it will go away without acting it out. That's the amazing thing. Same with greed. You might have the strongest lust you've ever experienced to want something, to get something, or the strongest anger. But if you can be with it without feeding it, 
it will cease without you having to act it out. And that's a very powerful insight to, to track it with enough continuity of mindfulness so you see it's there, it's there, it's as big as the universe, it's a little less, it's gone, it's completely gone. And to realize, I, even though when it was really strong, it was like the mind was screaming, you have to, you should, you better do this now to this person. You know, but you, you said, well, that's, of course, that's what the mind thinks when this strong emotive force is happening. Of course it thinks that way. When we're feeling the pain of anger, we want to harm or we want to hate ourselves or something. But if we can just, now because there's wisdom, wisdom recognizes, well, of course it's like this. That's what happens when there's a lot of anger. We're not confused by it. And eventually, it's, because it's not fed, it goes away. And then the next time, there's more confidence not to take the bait. And then the next time, more confidence, and on and on like that. Thanks, Jonathan, for bringing that up. And we can come back here. We'll look at uh, non-stealing. We'll look at harming with our sexual activities. And we'll look at right livelihood in the next couple weeks. So you can be reflecting on those areas. And thanks, everyone, for your comments. Let's just take a few seconds, just enough time for one or two breaths together. Appreciate the silence. Letting go of the words. Thanks again for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.